Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, the lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and online mentorship. So check it out at tkex.org. If you're listening right now on iTunes or Spotify, please leave us a rating and subscribe so we can continue delivering high quality content and getting some esteemed guests. We've got an Australian guest today, local one, Mr. Dave Mowen. He is the founder of Form Physiotherapy. He is also the creator of Tame the Beast and Permission to Move, which has tools for both clinicians and patients with chronic pain. So Dave, thank you so much for making the time for us. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Awesome. Dave, the famous question that I ask all our guests, what is your story? My story. Um, so I'm a physio, a physiotherapist. I trained down in South Australia uh, at UniSA. And then I did a master's of musculoskeletal and sports physio after that. Um, doesn't sound much like my story, but that's what do people want to know? Yeah. Uh, after the master's, I was interested in, um, in pain. I, or even after the undergraduate, I was very interested in pain. Uh, UniSA hosts Lorimer Mosley, and I was always really interested in his work. So I started working uh, for three years uh, at Body and Mind uh, in, the, in a research role, which was really satisfying. Um, and, and during that time, I guess just started designing my own PhD that I was interested in, in knowledge implementation. Uh, we never went ahead with that. I just instead thought I'd just dive in and try and make uh, or implement, I guess. And that led me to start form physiotherapy as more or less a model of research in practice. Uh, and through that convinced Lorimer that we needed to make a uh, education, a free education tool, which was Tame the Beast. So put that together and uh, since then have been involved in pain revolution as well as starting permission to move our, our most recent project. Yeah. Awesome. Exciting stuff. And uh, for those who aren't really aware of permission to move, could you tell us a little bit more about what, what that is? Yeah, uh, Permission to Move was initially a book. So we wrote a book, uh, got a, a local journalist together with myself and our team and just worked to communicate the clinical practice model that we use in the, in the clinic in a really simple and achievable way. Uh, we then, I guess, achievable in that we wanted a, a practical model that people could, could apply and do in the clinic instead of theoretical ideas. Then we also... Tame the Beast generated quite a lot of traffic around uh, interest, so people that were interested in uh, getting treatment for chronic pain. But at that stage, there, weren't, there were not that many options for people to get ongoing treatment, uh, especially for the kind of global reach that, uh, that Tame the Beast had. So we wanted to produce an online pain program where patients could go through a self-paced learning process. So Permission to Move then became uh, that as well. And then finally, we've, uh, after running a, we ran a telehealth tr uh, clinical trial with Lorimer. Um, it's called Recovery Coach. And we simplified that model down into the Permission to Move Affiliate Program, which uh, we'll get to later. But it's a six-session plan. Yeah, we'll go through that later, I'm sure. You read my mind. I was just about to ask you. So tell us a bit more oh, yeah. about, about the, the initial study as well um, and that yeah. inspired the affiliate program. Yeah, um, Lorimer has lots of great quotes, but one of his is, if it's as good as you think it is, everyone needs to know. And if it's not as good as you think it is, you need to know. Um, and I, I think I'd been harping on about how good our clinical outcomes were. And Lorimer always said, well, there aren't many studies that have results that, that good. You need to put it to the test. And um, yeah, it, I think testing our ideas is really important, definitely. So we were able to organise uh, Lorimer's group as a research body, ourselves as the clinical deliverer and an insurance company to all come together to provide a really good environment, hopefully, for research. But it was um, officially a clinical feasibility trial, so it's difficult. We can't breed in too much to effect sizes and um, apart from at a preliminary level. But the results that we did gather uh, were really, really promising. And for us, I guess, they, uh, we looked into the effect sizes out of interest and they're pleasing enough for us that we want to uh, carry on and, and do further research. So we're, um, yeah, essentially 
we're trying to make uh, really good quality pain treatment as inexpensive as possible. So um, at the moment that was, or the first step was saying, well, if we got clinicians to deliver this process, uh, how well would it go? And the results are encouraging and digital is always cheaper than person to person. So now we're looking at our, in it, to get a bigger sample through uh, negotiating at the moment to get this underway for a bigger sample using a digital product and slightly less intensive coaching as well. Um, and then I think our, our final step will be coaching delivered by non-health professionals predominantly just to get that price point down one step further. So yeah, the, the trial itself was uh, six sessions all delivered via telehealth and it was uh, focused on education on uh, pain, the biology of pain. We talked about the science of healing and then we helped people to apply that learning to their own situation through uh, movement plans, essentially, uh, graded exposure and movement. That's awesome. And the other, uh, I love that quote by Laura, and the other kind of quote that comes to mind is, if we're all so good as clinicians, why are our patients so bad? And with the increase yeah, kind of data on that, there's, there's definitely room for improvement. So it's great that you put the kind of your words to your mouth in a way and tested it out. And it was all delivered yeah. by telehealth. So there was no yep, in-person. That's true. The other thing that we were interested in testing is um, this idea of an X factor clinician. And um, I definitely would never label myself as an X factor clinician, but um, I think I was initially working as a sole practitioner and then I added one and two and more clinicians where up to about seven of us now. And we, we, we've standardized our delivery in the clinic so that it, it's, it's highly standardized, but I did also, uh, I do also think it's important that we test processes, not individual clinicians. And that was the great thing of, um, yeah, of putting through this, this method is I, I didn't do, I think I maybe delivered two or three of the patients, but it was really just testing uh, multiple deliverers, multiple, um, yeah, deliverers. And, and I think that was really good. So. Yeah, otherwise it's it's all attributed to someone's kind of own personal clinical skills or judgment or communication skills or some other factor yeah. that you don't really know about, right? Yeah, it's hard to pull it apart. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. And there was a so I went through that and also listened to your previous podcast as well on the the three step kind of process when it comes to um, upskilling clinicians on this standard of care. So could you run us through those three steps? Yeah, so um, in, the, in the book here, yeah, we talk about uh, our clinical practice model and a snapshot is establish if someone is safe to move and then communicate that to them and then act on that knowledge. So establish, communicate, act on safe to move. Um, we define safe to move as a constructive diagnosis as opposed to a pathoanatomical diagnosis. So Constructive diagnosis, I think, is our own term. So you, you shouldn't have heard of it before unless you've seen our work. But it's basically something that informs action. Um, with, the, with the really high prevalence of imaging findings in asymptomatic people and um, just all of the changes that happen with chronic pain, we think that using a uh, pathoanatomical diagnosis to drive chronic pain is, in many cases, not the best approach. So... In the established phase, we talk about uh, this creating a constructive diagnosis and, and really just answering that question, are they safe to move? And uh, if not, what's the conditions that you're placing upon that? Under communicate safe to move, uh, we've employed Bandura's work, Albert Bandura's work, a psychologist on self-efficacy theory. And um, he talks about what well, self-efficacy is more or less a proxy measure for behavior change. It's, it's so strong. So if you can increase self-efficacy, it's a great thing. And the model that they've put forward for that is to, uh, first of all, offer someone verbal persuasion. So this would, to me, be the explicit pain science content. And then use vicarious experience, so stories of others who've, who are ideally as similar to you as possible and then they recovered. So that's the proof, if you like. Um, but the final step is mastery experience or um, putting the new behaviours in or testing out the theory and, and getting um, new outcomes to, to old situations. So um, we, we sometimes use an analogy of flying. So verbal persuasion is you're saying, we think you can fly. 
Um, at that point, it's worth saying they should probably think it's ridiculous. If, if someone's had chronic pain for 10 years and you're saying, hey, you can be pain-free, that's um, a, a degree of scepticism that's not just acceptable, but you, it's probably desirable. It means they're a critical thinker, hopefully. Um, vicarious experience, this is we introduce you to some people that can fly or the people just like you who no longer have chronic pain and followed a, a similar approach. And mastery experience, you do the thing that you haven't been able to do, ideally with less pain and, and a different outcome. Or in the metaphor, you take your first flight, if you like. Yeah, That's awesome. There's, um, the, the education is delivered very much in that ex experiencing the fact versus kind of just telling them or educating at them. It's, it's more of an active experience for them versus a passive kind of even an intervention by itself. Some people might claim pain science is. So I think that's one of the crucial yeah. elements. Yep. Yeah, we really like that about the online course as well. It's um, so delivering educational content in a passive way, in, in a really at, at some point that just learning from a, a, a resource that stays the same as opposed to learning from a clinician who adapts the message to you. We're, we're finding that's really neat because there's all these chances where as a clinician, as a, as a passionate clinician, you want to jump in there and change something or say something and and having a a really static educational module that is the same for every person uh it just removes some of those clinical biases where you think oh maybe i won't tell this person this today or maybe i'll focus more on that and instead it says well here's this recovery skill set we think that patients should have and then in your coaching sessions which sit either side of the online module um you can do a bit more of that application, but we're really switching the role from clinician as driver to it's very patient centered and, and trying really to have them bring questions to you instead of the other way around. And, and that's going really well. Yeah. Awesome. It's, it's uh, us as the interactor versus the kind of dictator or authority figure. We're kind of just coaching and guiding them to what their goals are. So that's really great. Great to see it. it um, alleviate some of the pressure on us as well to provide all the answers and you know, <laughs> provide that quick fix. I'm sure you've come across that. Yeah, we, we got a lot out of a book called 1001 Solution Focus Questions. Uh, I refer to it quite a, quite a lot. Um, I said they had this great part in the book where they said, if you're tired at the end of the day, you're probably giving too much you, and maybe even to the detriment of your patients. It's definitely uh, generous paraphrasing but um but yeah I, I like their book for for giving a bit more uh if if any any listeners want more clarity it gave us a lot of clarity around how to structure that work that's great that's such a great good quote if you're working harder than your client maybe that's a flag to perhaps change what yeah. your approach is right there's uh, yep. i wanted to touch on the, the first of all the vicarious experience and then the, the mastery because that kind of vicarious experience we don't really really go through in, in clinic and it, we might just see someone one-on-one -on -one. we don't really give examples of people in a similar boat to them how would you kind of recommend for clinicians in practice to enhance that that part of the, yep. the self-efficacy yeah so we uh under tame the beast we made a section of what we're calling real stories or stories from the clinic so we've got seven podcasts up there i think that podcasts are a really strong way to deliver vicarious experience and the more credible the podcast, the better, I think. So we have one on uh, the health report, a, a psychologist came that came through the clinic and uh, for a sceptical patient hearing um, Norman Swan's voice as an intro and then going into this very credible, well-produced podcast, I think, I think that's, a, that's a great way to do vicarious experience. Um, I think that some, something distant, so it could be as simple as um, telling in a really abstract sense stories of others in a like depersonalized event stories of other patients of yours. But I think that's slightly less credible than um, a well-produced podcast, ideally from a different group as well. So the, the more distant it is from yourself, the better. Um, yeah. I, it's, it's almost selling the person on the idea uh, in a way. And, and you look at, uh, the Americans are just great at selling things and they're full of testimonials on all of their websites. And I think if you think of vicarious experience as a step in selling conceptual change to the person, uh, and then you look to the, the world's best sellers, what a, they've figured it out, haven't they?
<laughs> those, yeah. those endorsements by athletes and yeah. stars and celebrities. So having more examples of people like, like you know, actually promoting and preaching the, and it's, the work. Yeah. yeah. The, the difficult thing with that is, um, yeah, trying to at the same time do uh, practice that feels really evidence-based as well. So I'm definitely not saying to go down that slippery slope of <laughs> sales, but, um, but I think there's something in a really well-produced, uh, honest story of someone. Um, but yeah, it's, you've got to be mindful at the same time, I think. Yeah. I'm certain. And yeah, like you said, if we had sources outside of our kind of scope or our kind of um, clinic, that you know we have the world's leading researcher Laura Mosley talking about it or some other uh, relatable story for the client maybe that can help with the selling that behavior change and i wanted to to yeah. touch on the the mastery aspect so what what is exactly that mastery experience yeah so mastery experience um can come we you can have a reflective mastery experience. So uh, you can think about the past and have a mastery experience by reinterpreting the same facts, or you can have a, a, um, a mastery experience in the moment as you do something uh, and have a result that's different. So the most common way we, we probably go for both of those reflective and kind of current um, mastery experiences, but this is the person with back pain who uh, feels that they need to brace. This would be the, the most cliche example, I think the person with back pain who's been told they need to brace for a very long time and they've learned these patterns in a, in a very deep way. And this is them maybe attempting to lift something off the floor while bracing and finding it really hard. They go to lift it. It's painful and it just doesn't feel right. And then you saying, let's see if we can relax that. Sometimes we'll use this analogy of it's like you're holding your finger back and you're trying to like of course that's going to be uncomfortable after five years or so and if you relax it that's it's, it's not only safe but it probably feels nicer and try and bolster up this argument in favor of them moving and then the mastery experience is when they relax and then they lift the thing and ideally it feels easier or something to that effect so um I really am not into the word violated uh, it's just but it's this is the violated expectation isn't it wow um so yeah we prefer to call it mastery experience but you should definitely think of uh expectation violation or something like that in this term and when i was saying you can do this in a reflective sense um you can uh look back and say well you were telling me that you understand your neck's really fragile but it's sore sitting at the computer and you went dancing the other week and it felt better. So that would be a reflective mastery experience. Um, yeah, if that makes sense. It does, it's yes. Just, so, isn't it but, interesting as well how people remember things? Like, um, and I think this is so important because we're trying to elicit uh, new understanding. And um, I wonder whether you remember right now all the things I spoke about or whether people in the audience are just thinking about the word violated. And I think as an educator, we need to be really on to... Uh, just how difficult it is to to correctly get the message that we're trying to get across. <laughs> so that's just an aside for your listeners. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, it's so true. And uh, I forgot the exact effect you might be able to chime in here, but there's the recency effect, or like if you you remember the first kind of few minutes of a presentation and the last few minutes of a presentation. So yeah. all these yeah. factors involved. It's so interesting. Memory is so interesting, and then. When it comes to relearning or learning pain, I think it's so important just to do repetitions because we'll take, uh, I had a very successful on the surface mastery experience with a patient uh, and I thought everything went really well and I phoned him up after the session and um, it sounded like it was going really well. His pain had gone away and we only did a few sessions and months later I did our follow-up and the understanding that they took away from it was that the deadlift that we did somehow realigned their back and um, that so long as they kept lifting in this special way that I didn't even intentionally teach, um, then it would all be okay. And the, that real spin-off effect on education. So we've become, uh, we've gone through doing a lot of education to doing what we call the minimum effective dose of education, just enough to try and elicit behavior change to actually going almost like the Dunning-Kruger effect. Now we're coming up the other side again 
to the point where we're like, oh, maybe we do actually need to do quite a lot of reps on this. And again, that's just about having this really, um, this good curriculum around it. And the reps don't have to be, uh, in our opinion, education, like explicit education, but it's just about if they're doing exercise, then hopefully the person's conceptualizing exercise as mastery and not as strength training, something like that. Um, but yeah, just education's really tricky, I think, is our takeaway after a few years at this. Yeah. Definitely. And it's interesting to reflect on what the person is taking away from the session. We could be on the on the ball, right? On the during the sessions and then afterwards they go back into their context, their social environment, their work environment, their home environment, hear different conflicting messages. So I think it's great to reinforce those messages with with content, with education. Yeah. I'm just bringing up our, we, exactly that. We, we've worked on what we're, so in our session plans, we have what are called standard questions. And um, the goal of these is that we really understand exactly what someone has taken away in their own words. And um, we, we did this as simply as saying, what did you learn last time or something like that? But we've, we've brought that up now into four questions. So what were your take home points from this week's content? Um, so the patient will have done the online course and now you're doing the session subsequent to that. So what were your take home points from this week's content? Did the information apply to you and your pain? A really good question if they're like to pick up that person who's making it someone else's story and not theirs. Um, what are some real life examples where you've tested these ideas? Now, if your patients are, are going away and, and testing the content, uh, that's really wonderful, a, a good degree of engagement with it. And, and finally, did you talk to anyone about these new ideas? We think that, um, yeah, the more that people engage, it seems to be a pretty good proxy for outcomes. So, uh, yeah, just making sure that you're asking these questions, we've, we've learned is just so important to uh, make sure that you're on the same page with your clients. Absolutely. That's it. So it's reinforcing the same message and also seeing how they're kind of responding and taking that message away outside of the clinic, which we only see them for maybe half hour to an hour. So really useful. Yeah. Yep. And then where, uh, I think this is a tricky thing being a clinician in this space is just how ambiguous the details are. So we don't have, there's no exact roadmap that we know is the best yet, I think. Um, so there are, in the same way that there are people with imaging findings that don't hurt uh, or don't have chronic pain, um, there are also lots of people with flawed pain cognitions that don't have chronic pain. And we constantly need to test ourselves, I think, to make sure that we're not just barreling down this pathway towards pain education without really testing it. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, it's just a constant process i think we need to check that we're still on the right path so far it seems that way but um but yeah I, in our education does someone need to have a pitch perfect description of of how pain works maybe not i think yeah totally agree and there's people that can perhaps know all about pain education and and we still kind of experience it in a different way so looking at it from that point of view and, and maybe being more person-centered and subjective as well to see what they're taking away from the objective data. Yeah, yeah. I think lots of clinicians have stories of patients who have comprehended all of the education really well, gone through per, what ideal kind of in our in our perspective, really ideal movement-based graded exposure interventions, and their capacity has gone through the roof, but they continue to have chronic pain. And there's just I'm sure that in, in 50 or 100 years, we can subtype the biology of these different types of chronic pain and uh, at least in more detail than now. But at the moment, it just is ambiguous and we need to, that's the real difficulty of working in this space, I think. So for us, well, what are the big ticket items we're looking for? The first thing probably is task choice. If, if someone has the confidence to do a more lofty, more challenging task. That's, that's hopefully going to translate into meaningful functional tasks for them. Um, I think for us, pain is probably a few levels down um, and usually is the outcome of other factors and, and not a direct effect. Yeah. That's great. And I, I really enjoy the, the focus on the function. So even the, the mastery task would be a functional, meaningful exercise to the person. So I was yeah. wondering what, what's your kind of take on kind of that. So the interventions kind of focus. So there's 
there's the perhaps the idea we, we get taught this in, in university where we apply some kind of treatment choices to someone in order to get an effect but you seem to be focusing on actual the, the person's function and improving that as the as a treatment as opposed to applying manual therapy or applying a movement corrective sequence yeah i think um i'm i'm sure that i'm sure that lorimer did a study on this as well not to cite him all the time it's just that i guess having worked worked with him my thinking is probably lorimer centric too but there was an interesting one where they uh did i think straight leg raise and compared it against clinicians or clinical students who were first told that it was a muscle test or a neural stretch and um and looked at the experience of those and how much just experience changes task choice and i or context changes task choice and even objective data and in the in the masters it was at UniSA it was really Maitland focused when I went through and the idea would be assess a straight leg raise, mobilise if you hypothesise that say some lumbar segment might have been related to that, mobilise it and then retest straight leg raise and if it was better then say well hey it, it must be because of the pavum or the, this movement I've done to their back that's what I've changed and I think uh, even if the reasoning was more broad and said, well, it was just something, some, I changed something and got some effect, it's still, um, I guess for us, it, it's valid, definitely, um, if you can maintain that change and if, yeah, I think it, looking at maintenance over time and if you apply a really rigorous process to that, I can still see that there's a potential there. Um, but for us, we're just finding that the that we can get really similar. So same same person, straight leg raise, get them up, do a deadlift, back on the table. And the, the initial retest data for us is very similar, um, but the, we're finding that it holds better because they've now lifted the shopping out of the car differently and they've moved the pots in the backyard and they've done this and, and they're, they're carrying over this sort of training effect in really basic functional tasks. And so that that test retest functional like really um at an impairment level goes up and also at this activity level they're engaging um yeah in a much more helpful way i think um yeah so so we're, it's the more that we've done it the more benefit we've seen from yeah going going general i think yeah it's kind of an all-in-one they're reducing some yeah. symptoms improving that function and then it's related to a real task that they have to do outside of the the clinic then in, in that case, Dave, and I imagine this has probably evolved over the, the years, what would be your, your stance on manual therapy when it comes to uh, working with people experiencing pain? Yeah, um, we're not, uh, so I guess there's two sides to it. One is I think in that run-in that I was giving before of if you're, if you're still using this process and you're getting an effect and that effect holds, um, I think that's fine. I think we're we're really interested in the meaning that someone has around like what does manual therapy mean to them um i think that we wouldn't these days be really supportive of the idea that we're returning a a joint back to a correct position i think i think i'd i'd take a stance on that but in terms of using um manual therapy for sense for almost a type of mastery experience or sensory some kind of sensory input I think that's um, that's a valid use of it. For for us, we uh, it's probably three or four years ago we stopped using manual therapy altogether, almost as a test, really, to see. Um, I wasn't doing much in my clinical practice, and with staff, there having manual therapy as an option means that if you perceive conflict from a patient around what you're offering there's this exit to like de-conflict. Just just give them what they what you think that they want and um, removing it all together was a huge trigger for improving our staff's um, professional skill set around doing this stuff because it meant you you just had to go like you just had to address the situation in front of you and um, we uh, we are really happy to refer if someone comes in and they, they we try and convince them about it and they absolutely didn't want to, we just won't charge them for that appointment so there's the only downside risk really is time um, our clinicians 
uh, are all on wages. So they're not employed. They're not related to how much they bill in an hour. So there's no real outcome of that, but I don't think we've ever had to do that. I think it, it always, you sort of set up this environment for success and, and it never gets called on. Um, but yeah, I, in our clinic, when we took it away, it just improved our skill set. I think we learned that there were lots of outliers, people who previously maybe our team thought wouldn't respond well to education, but if you actually gave it a shot, they responded really well. And um, yeah, I, for us, yeah, what's the most useful way to spend our time with a client? I, I think that uh, education and movement for us always sort of can have a bigger effect than manual therapy. That's awesome. And so your number one, creating that uh, environment that facilitates these kind of interventions. You are, you've created that constraint within yourselves. So it's a kind of constraints led learning for clinicians to apply an upskill in all the other factors. So looking at communication skills, perhaps some motivational interviewing involved and other strategies to, like you said, sell them in a way, the movement experiment so they can see and experience just as much effect as they would have perhaps in their previous experiences with physios. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's spot on. Definitely. Yeah. And even for acute injuries, we find um, because most acute injuries uh, are going to get better as well. So uh, we sort of forget that too. Yeah. 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 It'll get better in a week or seven days. If you come and seek my treatment, it's in, yeah, it's really just load management in that early phase. And, um, for us, we'd see that education is so important to load management because, it, again, it comes down to task choice. So, and, and for a lot of people, it's not their first and it won't be their last injury. They'll, um, so we love this idea that someone comes to the clinic with an injury and they can leave with a new skill set. Maybe they've uh, dissolved some unhelpful prior and they can respond to the future in a healthier way. It's such a great opportunity, we think. Injury, like, well, let's have a little bit more of that and then hopefully the future looks brighter for people. <laughs> 100% and hopefully some less, less healthcare costs in the future. Yeah. Yep. Less, less the, the need to seek out um, other professionals because they've already kind of experienced the beauties, the wonder of natural healing, of tissue healing, and they've gotten some load management skills that they can take away for the rest of their life. That's so valuable. Yeah. High value healthcare. Hey, what a great kind of, what a great notion. Yeah. I like it. I'm trying to, to pick some holes so far, Dave, but you're ticking all my biases as we go through. So wanted to expand. Dangerous, that. isn't it? It's, it is it's dangerous. Very, we're, <laughs> yeah. I well, think, I, wanted, yeah, I, go for it, go for it. Uh, I think the biggest challenge here, um, Whenever I interview staff, um, we our clinic has pre-selects clinicians that like this. We get applications from people who are already in the echo chamber. And I just think the most important thing, um, and I did an interview with someone uh, yesterday who did fairly well, um, but not as well as I think that a biomedical clinician would do. So I think, uh, sorry, I haven't said enough. Um, during our interviews, we have a really, basically just a post graduating the master's biomedical type exam and everyone that comes to work at our clinic comes in really excited and they think we're going to ask them questions around um i shouldn't be giving this away actually anyway <laughs> my point is i think yeah. yeah yeah pause there pause there back up no i think it's really important that clinicians that are practicing in this space have very sharp pathoanatomical skills as well i think if we're trying to pick holes in this stuff it's that clinicians here need to be really onto red flags and pathoanatomical diagnoses and they just may not surface that with their patients so the biggest risk i saw in writing the book with this idea of a constructive diagnosis is that um is that clinicians say great that means that everyone's or like that they reduce their threshold for safe to move so low that they get some false negatives and then there's harm associated i think that's probably um and for our clinic, uh, we, we see lots of runners and stress fractures, like uh, a big thing. So are we picking up things like stress fractures where uh, are we picking up, um, yeah, uh, all of these diagnoses that you should be sharp on. But it's just, a, that's, that's the risk, I think, and something to be just sort of constantly hot on. 
And if you're not having false positives, um, if you're not sending off for imaging and um, you, you thought they had a stressy and they didn't, and you, I think you should get some false positives. You should be a little bit oversensitive just so that you can make sure that you're not getting too many false negatives, if that makes sense. Yeah. Definitely. Always vigilant of red flags and even throughout the process rather than, you know, just at the initial consultation. So even throughout the, the time you spend with someone, there could be a red flag emerging and you can see some yeah. patterns. So just having that in the back of our minds, I guess, we're not kind of uh, taking away all the biomedical um, knowledge that we've gained over the years. We're just adding on top other layers. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And that's this watchful waiting um, so you come up with it or hypothetical deductive reasoning. I think that they have this sensitive, like sensitive pain system. And they, I think that they should respond fairly well to this loading program. And at six weeks, there's been no change or they're getting worse. And, and the tricky thing is that lots of people with chronic pain won't change in that time frame as well. So it's not about, um, yeah, it's, it's just a constant upskilling and reflective process of a clinician in this space. I think there's no, you can't just answer that question. It's really unfolding, but uh, a good place to put your attention if you've ever got some downtime, uh, I think, is always sharpening up those skills. Yeah. Definitely. That's it. It's, um, so I, I probably know roughly the answer to the next question, but, but just to clarify as well, the, if we've respected the, the mechanism of injury, if we've conducted a thorough objective, subjective um, analysis and evaluation, we are respecting tissue healing times. Do we need to treat acute people with acute pain and, and people with chronic pain any differently? Or, or why do you think there is that kind of assumption that we do treat them differently? Yeah, I think that, um, I th so I've just been really lucky in the last probably month to speak with almost 70 clinicians from like all over the world that are interested in this work. And I've gathered such a good insight into how others are making that decision as well. And from what I can gather, clinicians just have a reluctance to offer this to acute. I honestly think there's still a bit of a stigma around chronic pain. And then the clinicians uh, that I've spoken to, I've, I've written down a lot of phrases and assessed my net phrase bank and coming to these conclusions on that data set. I think that there's still this reluctance to give, um, pain education to acute injuries because people might think you're saying it's all in their head. And that reluctance is, I think, there with chronic pain as well. But they see that the benefit of delivering it outweighs any downside risk. Um, we, Our team, are, I'd say that we're entirely immune from this fear of now, this fear of people... Um, thinking that we're saying it's in their head or this stigma against it. We're just so, once you work in this space long enough, I think you just see the biology of pain as just as a constant irrespective of duration of injury. And it's just constantly working like fear or uh, other protective outputs. And it just makes, it just settles in and there's no barrier to offering that education. It's just a really exciting gift to be able to give someone that's, Hey, do you know that, what you feel isn't necessarily the state of your tissues. Like it's such an exciting, wondrous thing. And um, yeah, I, so in that way, roundabout way to answer your question, I think we don't treat acute and cr chronic injuries very differently apart from just load management in the, in the first few weeks after injury um, and just respect for the gravity of the situation. Maybe there's more, uh, empathy potentially with uh, yeah the, there's just a respect for the multiple contributing factors in in someone that's had longer term pain and potentially different outcome expectations but but even then lots of people with chronic pain make these really or there's a subgroup that make really rapid progress as well so we we don't really divide them uh but to say that uh we just quote that 12 weeks or three months. And I guess there's something in that, that lots of tissue, the majority or a huge amount of tissue healings already happened um, for most tissues by that stage. But yeah, we don't, we don't separate them too much. I think some ways the, the, the separation can give a form of validation if there's a tissue based diagnosis. And I, know, I don't know about your experience working with some um, compensable schemes. 
So work cover kind of, the, there is a diagnosis required in order for them to access a certain level of, of sessions or care. So perhaps mm. that's a, a way, I'm just trying to think of a way that it can be useful or helpful for, yeah. for someone. Even that, we, we've found that in the, we definitely, yeah, work in that space too. And we're finding that across the board as we're getting to, um, to know more and more of the people that are in that space, there's a greater acceptance of chronic non-specific low back pain as a diagnosis. And these, um, yeah, it, I think it's even in an insurance context becoming more acceptable to, to fall on non-specific diagnoses because we're seeing this cost of, if you have to pin it on a pathoanatomical thing, you'll, you'll find it somewhere. But if that has this potential downside, um, Maybe it's in everyone's yeah best interest, and that was the logic. But we're starting to see that change in practice as well. There's more acceptance for non-specific, um, and then there's not such a because CRPS is such a powerful one um, in the compens- compensation spaces. But we're starting to see a little bit more um, flexibility around that continuum as well. And um, yeah, I think medico legally it seems that crps has been seen as a lifetime uh it's it's forever almost it it feels like it's built into the system that way and giving patients an opportunity to recover and um, being open about communicating these changes especially in crps is just so helpful for the patient and and then ultimately for everyone it's um yeah i think the insurance space has a lot to win from this as well and so they'll probably be really open i think as well in the long game yeah i think so too and the, the more clinicians we get on board with this style and way of, of treating it becomes the norm in future hopefully we'll get to that social change yeah yeah definitely yep um yeah it's, it's so interesting just trying to understand the barriers for clinicians and there's yeah more training and education is definitely required across the board i think um it would just be so handy if it could go all the way back to day one of a degree program. I think that's the kind of change that will, yeah, that we'll start seeing, I think. Um, but yeah, it's just a big ship, isn't it? It takes a little while to turn around. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And uh, across your teachings, you've mentioned the, the kind of misconceptions about acute and chronic. Are there other misunderstandings when it comes to delivering this information or, or pain science in general, if you want to label it as, as such? When, in your teachings from clinicians, misunderstandings, misconceptions? Yeah. Um, I think the conflict one is huge. I haven't got the uh, data on the screen now. It's something like um, these will be within 5%. Something like 80, I think it's 86% of our clients in a one-year survey said that they got pain education. I think it was something less than 20% of patients said they expected it before they came. Um, so people didn't expect it and a lot of people recognize getting it. And then it's three or 4% less. So it's, say it's 86%. I haven't got the data handy, but yeah, 86% said they got pain education. Then 83% said that was an important part of their recovery. Um, that data for us is so, so powerful for helping clinicians see that this content is acceptable. A lot of the time, we have uh, patients that are really at the end of the road. They've had lots of different treaters and they're just generally pissed off at the kind of system. And I, um, that we don't get people that are primed necessarily to be responders, uh, which is, a, so p- people looking at our clinic would often say, oh, but everyone comes expecting that. And we, we do get some people say 20%, but the 80% are absolutely not that person. They've, um, some of them have done pain programs as well in the past and had negative experiences. And so our data says that patients identify that they received this education and that they found it really important. And um, we have a really high net promoter score, um, which we started doing about a, a year ago or so, um, just because it seems to be a bit of a across the board measure in healthcare that people are interested in now. And ours is really good too. And um, I just think, misconception is that patients will uh, not like this approach think that it's that you're telling them invalidating their pain or there'll be lots of conflict and um, you can definitely have that as an outcome though this is the tricky thing and it comes down to uh, clinician self-efficacy as well to deliver this model and that's where 
I think some clinicians start off doing this. They maybe hand over Explain Pain, uh, which I think is a great book, but it needs the sessions behind it, of course, as well. Um, but they've, they've gone in with the sort of top level um, strategies that they've heard of and they haven't had a great result. And then I think it's easy to say, well, my patients didn't like it, so they must be different to yours. But for us, it's just about developing your clinical skill set and your own self-efficacy and then rolling that over time. And then you'll see that these, I think, common misconceptions just get, they'll, they'll vanish eventually. It's, it's, um, we, we don't get those problems anymore. And, and to that, um, to that end is where we built the, the training course for clinicians in this six session plan. I think it's good to, um, because it's a broad space, start off and say, well, I'm just, I'm going to do this, this, and this. And once I've ticked them off, I know I've done what I was meant to do. And it's a nice place to start learning a skill so that you don't have to just jump right in. Um, but it's definitely not the only way. It just gives, just gives structure, I think. Um, other misconceptions that come out, uh, I think, are around load tolerance. We, we load patients... Um, Again, actually, most of our things are this cycle. We peak. We used to load patients really heavy, pretty much. Yeah, we, we went really, really heavy. Surprisingly to some clinicians, um, we didn't actually have that many flare-ups, but we probably had more than we needed. And then we realized that this is, um, that the bodies can tolerate this, but it actually, what we're looking for is amplitude of experience, not weight on the barbell. So we, we were sort of, a bit too down our own rabbit hole there. So we then dropped the weight down and used our metric more around the amplitude of the experience. How, how different is this to what they thought they could do and, and peaks there. We're kind of coming up again, but again, it's all this, yeah, start low, go high, go low, go middle. <laughs> um, and we're just balancing out all these variables, but the load. So I guess misconception too would be the load that your patients can tolerate uh, it's it's really high. Patient, um, if someone can walk around the street and do normal daily things, in in most cases they've got really really high load tolerance. Uh, I'd say. Um, so your patients get it. Your patients are probably stronger than you think they are, and um, yeah, and I guess they get it. That would probably be the last one. Like your your patients will get this stuff at a really deep way as well. Like the the depth of learning. Uh, is constantly we're just blown away by some of the ways that patients repackage these ideas and they give them back and they're still consistent but they're in their own in their own way and I think yeah patients are really switched on if you can if you can show them that there's hope um, and encourage them to think deeply then um, yeah lots of people can arrive at really deep kind of reconceptualizations yeah that's great that's and, I, and yeah perfect and I think the the bridging that gap I think you mentioned it is increasing our own self-efficacy. We've talked about increasing the patient's self-efficacy, but perhaps if we get yeah. those mastery experiences ourselves, we experience it, we get through the experiential learning, the horrible expectancy violation way, perhaps in our own practice, and we get some vicarious experience along that. Maybe then we can all kind of see and experience the change and the, the power of, of all these, and maybe there'll be less misconceptions. Yeah, it's exactly the, so that hopefully most of this talk is verbal persuasion and then I've given a few of my vicarious experiences and then next you go and yeah, generate your own mastery experience and starting with a, we wouldn't say uh, to a patient, great, you've got the first two, now is your mastery experience, um, go back to work full hours, go to the gym five days a week, start a like um, concrete course concreting course and uh, <laughs> go learn to shear sheep but you, you just do one thing at a time and it's the same I think with clinicians where if you can just take something as neat and well produced as that twin peaks model from explained pain just start with one model and just apply that and just do that or if you want to give it a real crack then our kind of longer model or whatever it is, but you need to just, I think, say, I'm going to do this one thing really well, get a little bit of self-efficacy going and then do the next thing and then the next thing. And um, yeah, I, I really do believe that this approach is quite sustainable as a clinician. It gives you, for um, 
some of the stats on retention for clinicians are really low. Um, I think like a lot of physiotherapists um, are no longer physiotherapists. And um, I don't know if it's the same in your profession uh, in EP, but um, I, I think that this sort of work, it, it feels so meaningful because you're, you're able to really offer a deep transformation um, to the way that someone kind of conceptualizes themselves and their world. And that is, that makes it highly sustainable. Um, unless you take on too much of that yourself. And that's where we were saying earlier, like having a process, this thousand and one solution focused question type thing of helping people solve their own um, challenges instead of feeling like you need to solve it. And then what we've learned is that just makes their outcome even better. So it's, it's, it's good. It's just a, um, I just don't think we get taught all of this at, at uni. Yeah. Not at all. We, we get taught to kind of correct and the writing reflex in, in motivational interviewing is, is ripe in our prescriptions as exercise physiologists, our exercise prescriptions or our corrective exercises or whatever kind of way we try and fix someone and that, yeah. Yeah. Dave, it's been amazing. We've touched on so many, so many useful concepts and, and I'm really keen to keep up the, the conversation and really keen as well if people are interested in learning more about you, they want to contact you or they want to learn more about permission to move. Where can they find you? Yeah, so uh, it's permissiontomove.com is our website. And then you click, can click on patients there. Um, that's got a lot of details uh, about the, the book and the affiliate program. I don't know if it's the right phrasing. The affiliate program is just a, um, it's a, it's a training program for clinicians to teach how to deliver this six-session plan and then access to our patient-facing digital products. So um what, what we're doing at the moment we're just really exploring um what what clinicians want and trying to make really responsive resources so uh, if you send an email it's hello at permission to move.com we're just talking with lots of people and um trying to make resources that people want so probably the best thing to do have a look around uh the book is a great place to start or just send us an email and we will be very generous with our time trying to understand how we can help people. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And having that, that first step for us as clinicians might be just reaching out, finding out a bit more information and then, then yeah, the great. Happen. Amazing. Thanks so much for your time, Dave. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. It's great. And keep up your good work too. It's yeah, really important. Thanks a lot.